Um, hey, if I don't know you, uh, my name is Glenn, Glenn Barnes, uh, lead pastor here, and we are beginning a brand new series um, today for the next five weeks called The Summer of Love. Um, and as we think about that, it was the summer of 1967, and our world was like a powder keg ready to explode, right? It was the height of the, the Vietnam War, and not only was the, the daily death toll, but kind of the realization of, of, of how long and, and, and that conflict could go on, just had people on edge. Uh, there was racial tension that was high. There were civil rights heroes like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. who were laying everything on the line to fight for equality um, and justice. And, and it was tense. Within a, a year, Dr. King would be uh, assassinated after that. Uh, the culture wars were going crazy. Everything from music and fashion and religion and morality um, had communities and churches and families. Uh, just heated and divided and angry and not even really talking to one another. And I don't know if that rings a bell with anyone. So out of all that angst rose up this rebellious movement uh, that was seen as kind of a cultural corrective by some. It was seen as a cultural disaster by uh, a lot of others. Uh, They called it the Summer of Love. And at the heart of the Summer of Love in 1967 were 100,000 young people who descended on San Francisco and on the Haight-Ashbury. And as I said, some called it the Summer of Love. Uh, Others called it a three-month excuse um, for drugs and sex and rock and roll that became kind of the, uh, the, the sound track of the hippie movement. That was the, the, they called the summer of love. Eventually now those hippies um, grew up and a lot of those hippies got married. And you guys know what they call the hippie's wife, right? Mrs. Hippie. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. We got an easy crowd here today, seriously. Hey, all of that stuff was before my time. Um, I am not here to debate the good and the bad of that movement, but rather what I want us to think about today and what I want us to kind of turn our minds to is this idea of a countercultural longing to do things differently. Because I wonder if we could learn from that desire to rebel against kind of our high-strung, critical, destructive, divisive culture and to offer another way and to offer specifically a way that is based on love and not just some sort of make it up as you go along kind of love, not just some kind of if it feels good, do it kind of love, but a love that is actually rooted not only in the teachings of Jesus, but in the character of God and really the revolutionary love of God. And so today we're beginning this new series, as you can see, called The Summer of Love. And for the next five weeks, we are going to dive in unapologetically to the Gospels and to what Jesus actually taught about love. We want to really be guided by the words of Christ. Now, in some ways, or in some cases, you may be surprised by some of this because uh, some of what Jesus said will actually run very counterculturally to kind of our shallow definitions that a lot of us uh, have for love and the way we think about love. Um, some of it may kind of ruffle some feathers because it will cause us to, to see and uh, look at and interact with the world maybe even differently than we're doing um, that now. But I know that if we can really be honest and look at and put into practice what Jesus taught about love, it is revolutionary. It's countercultural. It's an alternative to what we see. And it's time for the church to rise up and to lead the way in that kind of thing.
That revolutionary love will change your life. It'll change this church. It'll change your family. It can change this uh, community. And so our goal, as I said, is to study the teachings of Jesus. Each week we're going to be guided by kind of a different uh, teaching of Jesus on love. Um, But we also want to see kind of the actions. How does Jesus live those things out? How does he put those, uh, that love into um, practice? And, um, So uh, that's what we're going to do. Now, some people might be saying, um, why would you spend kind of five weeks on really an an elementary teaching of Christianity, right? Love is kind of the step one uh, of Christianity. And so as we begin, I want to share just a little bit of our heart as as church leaders and as pastors, why we would devote um, this time uh, to what, like I said, some people might say is kind of the elementary basic part um, of Christianity. I want to give you two reasons why we're studying what Jesus taught about love. And the first one is simply this. It's our theme for the whole year. We are made for this. This is what we are made for, right? As people made in the image of God, we've been saying all year long, we're made in the image of God. So we're to reflect God's character. That's what we're to be about. And at the heart of that is love. The reality is, is that the true test of Christian maturity, like if a person is mature in their faith, we, we tend to, to judge that by knowledge and how many Bible studies that person is in and whether they hold a position in the church or those kind of things. But the New Testament actually gives us the, the, the test of, of Christian maturity is love, right? Paul says it like this. He says, you can, you know, you can speak with the tongues of angels. You can give, you know, generously. You can have a faith that even moves a mountain, but unless you don't have love, none of it really matters. And so love is kind of at uh, the heart of it. So we need a summer of love because we are made for this as God's children. But even more than that, I think we need a culture of love because we need to alter, uh, offer an alternative to the negativity of our culture, right? We need a rebellious countercultural movement for these days that we are living in. So over the last couple of weeks, I've had just a series of, of kind of enlightening and I guess you might even call them kind of discouraging um, conversations. So a couple of weeks ago, I shared up here about how these last 24 months have been very difficult on, on pastors and church leaders. And I said that, that studies were showing that as almost 50% of pastors in the last two years were thinking about just leaving and going on and, and doing something else. So we were talking about that idea in um, our community group. And in my community group, there's a guy who's a farmer. And he says, well, you know, did you know that depression rates among farmers are the highest that they've ever been before? And I had no idea that farmers even had emotions or got depressed. <laughs> I didn't know that. And he said, you know, what? And, and, and veterinarians have a suicide rate that's bigger than, than anything they've ever seen before. And the same is true for soldiers. And the same is true for veterans. And there was a teacher in the group who said, you know what, and, and teachers are just like getting out of the profession because, you know, it's just all of the difficulties of that and, 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 and they're getting out of that. And then the next day I was talking to a guy who's a, a medical doctor and he said, well, in his uh, group, he said that the burnout rate for physicians uh, is double that it's ever been before. And so they were talking about ways to help physicians deal with with this burnout. And the point is, is that we all sense that there is this general sense of malaise that seems to have kind of fallen on our society, right? I felt that malaise as I stood right here in this place earlier this week and and led a funeral for a 24-year-old. And this room was filled with people looking for answers and and struggling to to process the death of a guy who died way too young and really for, for no really good reason 
at all. And so there's kind of this spiritual malaise, and I think we all feel it. I actually believe that kind of the heart of this difficulty is, is a spiritual one. I actually think that there's a great spiritual battle that is going on in our world and in our nation and in our um, community. And in many ways, the, the devil seems to be kind of taking ground in that area. But no matter what you believe the, the cause of that uh, difficulty that we're going through here, I think we can all agree that we need another way. There needs to be an alternative pathway. We need a movement of God's people that says, I don't have to just lie down and accept what everybody else says. I don't have to go along with the negativity culture. I don't have to go along with with all of those things that are so uh, destructive. I'm ready to be part of a revolution and a revolution that is based on Jesus's kind of love. And so, as I said, for the next five weeks, we are going to uh, dig into that. And it may not change the world, um, but what if it changed your life? And what if it changed your family and our community and it changed this church uh, to the glory of God? So, I hope you are with me because we are going to jump in. We are going to start at the beginning, uh, the best place to start. And so, I invite you uh, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I want to call your attention to a time when Jesus is pressed to choose the most important part of the law. The most important part of all of the commandments. And he begins with love. So, as you're turning to Mark chapter 12. Let me just kind of set the scene for what's going on at this time in in this little encounter that we're about to read. Uh, Mark chapter 12 is uh, uh, on Wednesday of Jesus's last week of his life, right? And so he's only a couple days away, a couple days removed from when he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and the crowds uh, hailed him as the king and and they welcomed him as the Messiah and all those things. But now on Wednesday, he's only a couple days away from that same crowd uh, shouting out that they wanted to, to crucify him. So he's in kind of this intense time. And Mark chapter 12 groups together three interactions that Jesus has with religious leaders, religious and political leaders who've kind of melded their way together and formed kind of this powerful uh, group of people. And Mark groups together three unique, or three separate encounters with religious people all together right there in that chapter. The first one is with a group of the Pharisees and also people that were supporters of Herod. So there's kind of this religious political group that is coming at Jesus. And they want to trap him. They want to trick him because they're they're trying to, to discount his ministry. They're trying ultimately to get rid of him. And so they try to trap him with a question about taxes, right? And who doesn't love a good question about taxes? And so they say, well, should you pay your taxes to Caesar? And Jesus gives this awesome answer, right? Because he, um, he, uh, he says, well, well, show me a coin. And they pull out a coin and, and they show it. And he says, whose image is on that coin? And whose image on it is, is it Caesar's image on that coin? And so Jesus says this, he says, well, give to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it, but give to God what has God's image on it? And what has God's image on it? You and I do, right? That's Jesus saying, you know, it's not all about taxes. It's about are you going to give your full self to the one that you're made in the image of God? 
And so the Pharisees and the, the friends of Herod are not crazy about that, but they go on. And, and next comes a group of Sadducees. And the Sadducees were all about kind of the resurrection and the afterlife. And so they try to trap Jesus with this question about uh, marriage and, and uh, at the, the, in heaven and what's all that going to be like. And, and Jesus basically answers them and says, you know what, in, in heaven, it's going to be different. All of the cares of the world, not that marriage is a care of the world, but he says all of that earthly stuff is going to fade away because you're going to be like angels that gather around the throne and sing worthy, 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 and holy, 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 right? Because they're in the presence of God. And in a way, Jesus is saying, in heaven, it's going to be different because you're going to be able to give yourself fully to God. You're going to be able to worship him fully. And the Sadducees go away and they're not too crazy about that answer. And next comes this guy um, who is a scribe. And that brings us to where we are in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. These were probably familiar words to you if you've been around the Bible at all. But it says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important. So as I said, it says here that he's a teacher of the law. Other places say that he is a scribe. The scribes are the ones who were very devoted to uh, the understanding and the preservation of the law. So they loved these kinds of questions. You know, is there, is there something that, you know, really summarizes the law? Is there one thing that's kind of the most important? So Jesus, they say, of all the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, which one is the most important, the most weighty, the most, uh, uh, the greatest of them. And then this is what Jesus answers. He says in verse 29, the most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And in that point, if it was in Jesus' character, which it wasn't, he would have just said, boom, mic drop, enough said, right? He says the most important thing it sums it all up and it all revolves around that is that you love God with all that you've got. When you put that into practice and you, you, you build your foundation on loving God with all that you've got, the other 612 commandments are gonna begin to find their way and find their place. And so if this is the greatest commandment, uh, what I wanna do for our short time together here today is I wanna ask two questions about it. Two questions about these famous words. The first one is this, what is Jesus really saying about love for God? And so we're gonna kind of go through it uh, word by word about what Jesus is saying about uh, love for God. Second question we're gonna ask is how did Jesus Jesus do that? How did he put that into practice and how can I grow in my love? So what is Jesus really saying about love? Now in Mark chapter 12, it's where the, as well as the other places um, in Matthew and Luke where we have this same quote, um, it's really not a huge surprise that Jesus answers this. Uh, Jesus answers with what is known as the Shema. The Shema originally comes from a Deuteronomy chapter 6 and a good Jew would have actually said those words as a part of their prayers and a part of their liturgy probably twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and even more during times of, of, of festival. And so the Shema was not a big surprise. Shema is just the Hebrew word that means hear or listen. It's the first word of the phrase um, that it says Shema Israel, hear Israel. So it's kind of like calling the Lord's Prayer, the, some people call it the Our Father, because it's just like the first 
words of the, the prayer. And, and so this is the Shema that begins, Hear, O Israel. So for 1,500 years almost, every day Jews had been reciting this. And Jesus says, now it's also going to be the kind of the, 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 the heart of my movement and the people that follow after me as well. So like I said, let's just kind of look at this word by word, um, starting with what Jesus says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when Jesus uses the, the word Lord, Lord our God, he of course is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 where the word is Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord. We don't translate it that way. We translate the word Yahweh as Lord. It's the Hebrew name for, for God. And Jesus evokes really the most holy and the most sacred of all the names of God. So when Moses um, is at the burning bush and he's got this big responsibility to go lead the people out of Egypt, uh, he says, who should I tell him sent me? They're going to ask me your name, God, so I need to know what, what do I tell them. And God says, tell them this, I am who I am. Yahweh has sent you. It means I am who I am. So when we think about Yahweh, first of all, it's a very powerful name. It's the name by which all the miracles are done there in the book of Exodus. Um, But Yahweh is a powerful name because it speaks to this idea of God's eternal nature. There's no describing or, or understanding or completely wrapping your mind around who he is or, or where he came from. There's, he is the God with no uh, beginning and he is the God with, with no end. He is simply, I am who I am, which is a powerful thing. Now, for me, that makes my head hurt to think about that, right? Because I only, you know, can think in, in, in time as a human, but he stands outside of time because he's not human. He's God. He is Yahweh. I am who I am, which is why the angels sing around his throne. You're worthy. You're holy. You're righteous. You're all these things, right? So uh, it's a, a powerful name, but it's also Yahweh is a personal name. Yahweh is a personal name. It's how he reveals himself to those that he loves. And it's how he reveals himself that he's different than all the other gods. He's different than all the little G gods. The name Yahweh is both a revelation of his greatness as well as an invitation to know him, right? Those that love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength know him as Yahweh. Right? And so to talk about loving Yahweh, to talk about loving Yahweh, it's so important to note that, that, that he's not just some vague force. He's not just some generic deity. He's not just some generic higher power that is out there. The point is that all gods are not the same is really at the heart of, of what Jesus is saying here at the beginning. All gods are, are not the same. Now, that's tricky in our culture and in Jesus's as well, because what do people want to do? People want to make all gods the, the same, and you have your way, and you have your way, and you have your way, and we all end up the same at the end. And, and what Jesus is saying is that's not true. God is, is different than all the other gods. In fact, when they first were given this command, you got to remember that the people were getting ready to go into the promised land. They were leaving Egypt. They were going to the promised land. And in that promised land, they were going to encounter all kinds of different idols, all kinds of different ways that, that people were going to worship. And they were going to vie for their attention. And these idols were going to vie for their affection. And so Moses says what God tells me, says, tell them the Lord is one. The Lord is one. There's, there's not a lot of other ones. And so don't turn to the right and don't turn to the left, right? And boy, isn't that a message that we need to hear today? Because there's so many things that vie for our attention and vie for our affection. And, and no, but the Lord is one. 
by the way, Jesus puts himself on this same platform or on the same level with God when Jesus talks about the love that we're supposed to show to him. Because he talks about, he said, don't put any idols in front. And now here he's getting a little personal, a little closer to home. Because Jesus is not talking about little gold statues or things like that. He says, no, don't put money in front of me and don't put power in front of me and don't put pleasure in front of me. But he says, he says if, if you're going to love me, you love me even more than, than your parents, even more than your, your children, and you come and follow me. In other words, you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's a, that's a big thing for us to take in, but that is how worthy he is and that is how holy he is. And that's why he calls us to love him with all that we've got. And so because there are no idols that come close to the Lord, um, what are we to do with this? So how do we put this into to practice? Um, we are supposed to love him above all else. Well, love, of course, is a really big concept. Um, you know, if I asked, a, a, you know, 10 of you, we would get 10 different definitions for the word uh, of love. The word love is used in the Gospels 75 times, so it's a big theme. But what does it really mean? I'm going to help kind of answer that question. I want you to take a look at this video uh, from an organization called The Bible Project that explains the Hebrew word love. Let's take a look. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. So Abraham had Ahava for his son Isaac, that's parental love. Jonathan showed Ahava for his friend David, that would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have Ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their King David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations, and so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection described with the one word, Ahava. Now, all of this is helpful for understanding God's Ahava in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you. He chose you because of his Ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not a duty. It's a genuine feeling, an affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. 
God's love isn't just a sentiment, it is something God does. And so, in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's Ahava by showing Ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word ahava. All right, so there you go. That may have been more than you want to know about that Hebrew word, um, but you get the, the power of that. It's a part of God's character. It who, is who he is. And so we're to return that love to God, and it's, a, it's an action-based love. It's, there's a feeling part of it, but it's also an action-based thing. And so Jesus says you show this ahava to God with everything that you've got, starting with your, your heart. How's your ahava in your heart for God? Now, to the ancients, the heart was more than just the, the muscle that pumped the blood. They did understand the physical side of it to some effect. Uh, but to them, the heart was the center of emotions. It was the center of where you make decisions. It was the center, as I said, of, of your affections and what you really care about and value. From the heart flows life. So to quote Selena Gomez, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. And we, we know that. Once we get kind of our heart set on something, we chase after that. And so the question is, is does your heart want God? Because if your heart wants God, your heart's going to chase after God. And so how do you, how do you, to to build that up? Um, We're also to love God with all of our soul. The soul, especially for the Hebrew, is different from the way that we think of soul. Uh, When we think of soul, we usually think of just kind of the spiritual, non-physical part of a a person, almost kind of like the ghost in the machine sort of idea. Um, And soul is spiritual for sure. But in the Hebrew word, the soul um, really speaks of kind of the whole being. Everything that makes a person human is their, their soul. The word soul literally is the same word for the word throat. And and the reason that is, is because everything that passes your throat, everything that comes in and everything that goes out and everything that goes in and goes out is what makes a person human, right? And so that's the, that's what it is with our soul. That's why Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for water in their throat, they just long for that water. He says, so my soul longs after God. What would it be like to long after God, like a deer that's just, you know, searching for that water. Jesus says we should love God with all of our minds, with all of our minds. This love for God um, that we talk about is more than just emotions and, and feelings. A lot of times, you know, we think of love as an emotion or a, a feeling where uh, we just check, kind of check our brains at the door. That is not true of the love that we're supposed to show for God. No, we love God with the intellect that he gave us. Some of you need to hear this. You love God with the mind that he gave you. 
Christians should not be afraid of reason. Christians should not be afraid of science or, or for, for, uh, for our God, God is the God of all truth, right? If God is the creator of all things, he's the creator of all truth. And, and he says, when you seek me with all your heart, but the idea is when you seek me passionately, you will find me. God is behind every mathematical theory. God is behind every scientific discovery. God is the author of all creativity. From the artist, to the poet, to the doctor, to the computer scientist, whatever it is, God gave you your mind. And he says, love me. Love me just as you do with your heart and your soul. Love me with all of it. In fact, he says, love me with all your strength, which is to say with everything you've got, with the tenacity that says, I won't let go. Steve was talking a little bit about the, the Warriors game, and I was watching the Warriors on uh, a couple nights ago, and, and the, the, the Warriors were losing by like almost 20 points. Um, but then slowly but surely, they started to, to come back. And if you were watching that game, you saw something in the eyes of those players. There was a tenacity that said, we are going to win no matter what. We are going to do whatever it takes. We are going to give everything that we've got because with all of our strength, we are going after this win. And eventually that's what they got. And I thought, wow, what if I were to love God with that kind of tenacity? With all of my strength, I want to go after God. And so the question is, how is your ahava? How is your ahava for God? Because Jesus says the way we love God is the most important thing in our spiritual life. If Christians are going to lead a revolution of love, it's easy to skip ahead to the way that we love other people, and we're going to get to that for sure. But the foundation of it all is this love for God, right? This is not just some make it up as you go along, if it feels good, do it kind of love. This is a love that is rooted in the words of Jesus and in the character of God. And that starts with our hearts falling deeply and passionately in love with God. Here's the problem though. I don't know if I could say that I've ever really done that, right? I think there's times in my life where I've been closer to God or felt more emotion or maybe even more more obedient or things like that. There's times like that. But I don't think I've ever loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? I've never chased after God in the way that the warriors chased after that win. And so what are we supposed to do with this? How do you put that kind of love into practice? And as I said, in this study, we're going to look not just at the words of Jesus, but we want to see some of the example of Jesus as well. So we're going to just do kind of a a skim uh, over the surface of that, of what Jesus shows us, what love looks like, and what it looks like to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It reminds me a little bit of the um, idea that Gary Smalley made famous, probably 25 years ago, he started writing about the five love languages. Are you guys familiar with the five love languages? And so Smalley came up with this idea. He said that people give and receive love in different ways. And a lot of times, some of the relational problems we have is because you're showing love in a way that that person is is not receiving it. So he said everybody gives and receives love in one way or another. And he, he put them into these five categories. And so those five categories are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving and giving gifts, uh, quality time, and physical touch. And so for me, uh, my highest, if I take that little love language uh, test, I always come back that my uh, number one is words of affirmation, and my second one is, is physical touch, which is basically a way of saying that I'm very insecure. I need people to say nice things to me, and sometimes I need a hug. I just need a hug sometime. And so that's who I am, and that's great. Um, but Jannie, my bride, who I love deeply, um, we've been married for 30 years, um, surprise, surprise, is the exact opposite. 
right? My two are her lowest two. They like barely even, she only gets points on that because you've got to check some number. Um, for, for her, it's all about um, acts of service and about quality time. So I can go to Jannie and say nice things to her and give her a hug and she's fine with that. But what she really wants me to do is do the dishes or fix that thing that's broken or to just hang out. And why are you guys looking at me like that? I did the dishes. I did them, honey. <laughs> and she wants to just hang out, you know, to go for a long walk because that's her, her love language. So obviously that's a recipe for, you know, disaster. It's a miracle that we made it um, 30 years. But the goal with this whole thing is not to know your love language. Your goal is to know the other person's love language, right? So that you can, can show it to that person. And, and God doesn't have a love language. But what I'm asking is, how does Jesus teach us you put this love into practice? Because while I've never done it perfectly, Jesus did it perfectly in the way that he loved God. And so I'm going to just scratch the surface um, of this. But I want to uh, su- su- or, uh, suggest three things um, that Jesus really did. One is he spent time with God in prayer. Um, two, he demonstrates devotion um, in his, of his love and obedience. And then the third thing we're going to look at is that you put love into action by loving others. So how can I grow in my love for God? Um, the first one is this, is spend regular time with God in prayer. When you look at the way that Jesus loved his heavenly father, it included regular, constant, ongoing times in prayer. You know, one of the mysteries to me about Jesus is how did he do all of the things that he did? I mean, he had three years, really three years that were kind of the heart of his ministry and he changed, you know, the world forever. We're still talking about him 2,000 years later. How did he do all that in three years? How did he have the time in his day to preach to the crowds but also care about the leper? How could he disciple his disciples but also, you know, teach this person or heal that person? How did he do it? One of the things I think we learned not just about kind of time management but about priority from Jesus is Jesus was never too busy to pray. I love Luke 5.16, and this verse appears in, in a dozen different forms in the Gospels, but it says basically this, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed. Do you notice that? Jesus withdrew. He unplugged. He got away from the crowds that were pressing in on him. He got away from the noise that was the constant for him. He put his phone down. He turned the computer off. And he got away and he withdrew to a quiet place, actually to a lonely place. And how often did he do this? He did it often. And there he talked to God and he listened to God and he prayed. And in doing those things, you fall in love with God, but it's also your chance to say, God, I I love you. And so I don't, you know, I don't think I've never done it like Jesus did but to take those times to just quiet yourself and put your affections to God. That's one of the ways that we're gonna grow in our love for him. Second thing we see um, is Jesus demonstrates devotion um, in his obedience, right? He's obedient uh, to God. And I can't help but think of that time when Jesus is on the way to the cross. We know it well. And Jesus is on the way to the cross and he goes to the, the garden He asked his disciples to stay behind and pray, and he goes up and he prays. And it says that he prayed so earnestly that he'd sweat drops of blood. I don't even know how that happened, right? That's praying with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And do you remember what he prayed there? We're we're privy to it. He says, says, God, I don't want to do this. I'd rather not go to the, the cross. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Talk about love. Talk about uh, ahava, because it says it's not about me, it's about you. And as I think about my own life and, and as your pastor, as I think about your life, how often can you say that your life is guided not by your will, but by, by God's will? How many places in your life can you say, you know what, I really don't want to do that, but it's not about my will, it's about God's will. Because one of the ways that we grow in our love is sacrificially. I know that if, if Janny, you know, benefits from, from uh, quality time and from acts of service, I, I need to do those things. And when I do those things, and obedience is probably not quite the right word because that's a, maybe a trigger for some people <laughs> when you think about husband and wife. But the idea is, um, as I sacrifice for her, I, that, that, that doesn't push me away from her. That doesn't embitter me towards her. It, it, it grows my affections and my love toward her. And the same is true for God. And so where is somewhere that, just somewhere this week, you could say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And maybe it's a step of obedience. Maybe it's to give generously, even when the economy seems like it's going sideways, right? Maybe it's to, to share the gospel with, with that neighbor down the street or that friend at work. Maybe it's to forgive someone that you've been holding on to that, that grudge or that unforgiveness. But Jesus commands us to forgive and, and you say, God, this is not my will. I don't want to do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done because obedience builds um, love. And then the third one that I want to say is you act out love for God by loving people. I'm not going to even talk about this today because we're going to talk about it over the next several weeks. But what we see is that love is for God is activated in the way that we love other people because love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. That is what Ahava is. Hey, and I want to just close by sharing one more kind of, uh, it's not something that Jesus does, but it's something that, that happens to Jesus and I think teaches us so much. Because if you're here today and you think, well, gosh, I really want to grow in my love for God, but I just don't, you know, how do you, how do you make yourself do those things other than those little steps? I want to encourage you today to think about how much God has done for you. And whether you recognize it or not, think about the love that God has shown for you and the forgiveness that God has shown to you. Because there's this beautiful story in Luke chapter 7 um, where Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to come to his house for dinner, which is nice that the Pharisee asks him. And the Pharisee brings him in and they sit down at the, around this table and the Pharisee welcomes them and, welcomes them and they're having dinner. Um, but kind of around the outskirts of this house is this woman. And this woman has long hair and, and a perfume and she's crying and crying and she sneaks up to Jesus' feet. And with her tears, she begins to wash Jesus' feet. And she takes the alabaster perfume and, and breaks it and anoints Jesus in that way. And the Pharisee and the rest of the people at the table are like, does Jesus not know who this woman is? She's the town prostitute. Jesus, it says this, it says, if you were a prophet, you would know who this woman was. And Jesus says, I know exactly who she is. And then he tells a little story to the Pharisee to teach him a lesson. He says, try to imagine that there's two people that owe the master something. And one person owes 500 and one person owns five or 50. I forget the number Jesus uses there. But he says, and, and neither of them, none of them can repay it back. And so the master just forgives them both. He says, who's going to love the master the most? The one who's been forgiven the most. And that's what Jesus says. He says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. And there is not a person in this room, starting with me, that has not been forgiven much. And so if that could get into our hearts and our souls, that would 
push us to begin to love much. It's time for a revolution. It's time for God's people to say, we're gonna do it a different way. We don't have to go along with what everyone says. And it's gonna start with love. God, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for your teaching of love. Thank you for your character of love. And God, would you build that into us, starting with the way that we love you. Not with, with words, but with, with deeds. Lord, would our, 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 our words not flatter you, but our hearts be far from you. Lord, may we love you with all that we've got. And so I pray that we would push away the idols, push away the things that compete um, for, for your place in our life, and that we would love you with all that we've got. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.